beginning of this uh, cycle of time together, I thought that I would talk about the Eightfold Path. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's important because it's really the most direct uh, practical teaching that we have. You know, we have in this uh, tradition and who are in spiritual life in general, we can get very sophisticated and, and out there. You know, we can talk about the jewel net of Indra in Mahayana tradition where, where every entity in the universe interpenetrates and reflects every other entity. And we can get into this incredible cosmic perspective and we can talk about emptiness and we can talk about not-self and we can get very intricate in our metaphysical musings. And in some ways, the, the Eightfold Path is very practical. And it's, a, it's the way in which these teachings come forth to us in a way which can be very uh, easily applied to our daily lives. And in fact, one of, my, one of the interests that I have especially in these next weeks is to really focus on daily life practice and making daily life practice uh, come more alive. And so uh, I wanted to share with you a little bit uh, an experiment that I've, uh, actually a series of experiments that I've been doing uh, over the last, uh, actually I've been doing it for a few years, but I've kind of intensified them the last few months, and I call them my mindfulness experiments. And so, for example, I knew I was going to talk on the Eightfold Path, and so I went to a meeting a long meeting, which, which I have once a month, actually twice a month, I have three to five hour meetings. And I went to this meeting, and those of you who have heard my talks before know I get a lot of Dharma material from these meetings, <laughs> as, as you might get from, from your meetings. Uh, and I said, during this time, I want to be practicing the Eightfold Path. And it was partly kind of in preparation of the talk. And I, so I had a piece of paper, and I wrote down all the different factors of the Eightfold Path. And I wrote them down, and I, I, do, I wasn't taking a real lead role in this meeting. So I was, you know, participating, but not a major role. But probably I could have done the same thing anyway. So I was, um, I was sitting there, and my, my question for like the five hours was, how can I practice the Eightfold Path right here in this meeting? You know, and I think that's something, and, and for me, I, I've been doing these kind of experiments, and I love them, and I want to encourage you to think of doing something like this. Take an hour or two or three and say, okay, I'm going to do mindfulness practice during this part of the day in a more intensive way than I might otherwise. You know, usually we might have a general mindfulness and kind of come back and be present, but sometimes we can do these experiments. So here, I'll just say a little bit of what I was doing, and then... As I talk about the Eightfold Path, I'll, I'll mention some other things. So I, was, I, had, I had the piece of paper in front of me at the, at the table where I was. It had the eight factors of the path. And I had another piece of paper where I kind of took notes of what was happening. You know? And mostly it was a question of keeping coming back to the present in the midst of action. And it took a certain amount of ability to have inner attention at the same time as outer attention. And I actually think this is the great, uh, uh, I don't know, skill that we have to develop, to be able to be innerly attentive and outerly attentive at the same time, which is not easy. And so I was sitting there, I was writing notes, I would write notes, you know, uh, you know mindful, being aware, oh, difficult to 
be aware of all these thoughts coming by, how to stay grounded in the body, you know, or um, I would just try to say, okay, what does, um, what does right intention mean here? And mostly it was to come back, it was to find ways to keep coming back to being present in the situation and to keep having the intention to be mindful, to be aware, to use right speech and so on in the moment. And sometimes I would, I would write down these notes and other people couldn't really see them that well. So, but I, w- I would just, I was really, I don't, I don't, in fact, I don't think anyone knew that I was doing experiments. And I would do it, I would do things like, you know, later in the morning, I would say, getting tired, becoming innerly sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, maybe time for a break. And then, I, and then I would go, time for the restroom. <laughs> and it's actually for meetings, the great Dharma practice is going to the restrooms. This is, you know, I don't know if anyone's written about this at length. But it's something that actually I found in this context is very, very important because we lose ourselves. And the rest, going to the restroom is a socially acceptable way of coming back to oneself. And no one really tracks how long you go for. You know? and, and they don't even, you know, and a lot of times the bathroom is way away so you don't even have to flush. And you can just, anyway, I just go, and I use this liberally. <laughs> Uh, but I think this is, it's, it's all a question of how do you come back to the present and how do you renew yourself? So there I was, I was getting a little tired, so I go renew myself and come back. But it's, it's a lot about what I, what I love is the quality of, um, of having the clarity of intention and the strength of intention that may be as strong as the intention we have right here or in a retreat or let's say at our best moments. And I think that the challenge is to find ways to uh, have the practice, uh, have that level of clear intention and mindfulness and so forth. And um, as I go through the Eightfold Path, I'll come back and say some more of what I found in, in that experiment. Uh, so the, um, the Eightfold Path is this very practical way of letting us know uh, some guidelines for, uh, for developing wisdom and compassion in our daily lives. Uh, has... So has two terms, which I just wanted to clarify a little bit bef- uh, before I go further. The first is noble, and the second is path. And it's, I think it's very um, interesting that we have the word noble eightfold path. And I think the deeper meaning is that this is a path which in a way is ennobling, which, which brings, we might say, dignity and grace and a certain nobility to us. You know, sometimes the those who have worked long on the spiritual path in, in the Buddhist tradition are called noble ones. And it's, it's, you know, if nobility in our culture has somewhat of a class connotation, so you might want to think of another word, but it's a word that many friends use is the word ennobling, the ennobling eightfold path. It's something that makes us, in a way, um, noble, that brings out these qualities of beauty and dignity and uh, strength and whatever other terms we connect with the, with the sense of nobility. And the, the metaphor of path is a very interesting term as well, and I want to talk a little bit about it because I think it's a, very, um, it's a very helpful term. And what is it to walk a path? If you think about the metaphor some, to be on a path is to walk in a clear area. You know, and it may not have always been clear. 
surrounding the path may be brambles and bushes and all sorts of obstructions. And when we walk on a path, we walk in a place which has been cleared away. It lets us walk, it lets us be able to walk without getting stuck all the time. If there were the original brambles and bushes, you know, not to mention, you know, wild animals and other, you know, and bandits hanging, hanging out in the brambles and bushes, um, we, might, we might get lost and stuck. So a path gives us a place to, to walk without uh, obstruction. And in a way, a path is also something that is not the whole of the, the area where we might walk. We're always, as it were, in danger of falling off the path and getting obstructed. And so we can think of the path as this uh, space where we can keep moving, where we can keep growing and keep learning. And part of the learning is to find ways to stay on the path. And much of what friends and teachers will do, they'll say, wait, you're falling off to the left into, the, into, the, uh, into this ravine, you know, and watch out. And they help us to stay and keep walking on the path. Another quality of the path is that it goes in a certain direction. It's not just a, uh, it's not just a path which has no particular aim. Uh, I don't know if any of you know, uh, know German, but there's a phrase in German called, uh, the, it's called Holzwege, which literally would mean wood paths, but it actually is a term in, in peasant lore which means paths which lead nowhere. They're paths in the forest which go around in circles and end up just leading, not anywhere, but leading just to some brambles and bushes. And I don't know whether you feel sometimes that the spiritual path is like that, but the, but the, the general sense of a path is that it actually is going somewhere, that it's moving us in a certain direction, and that there's actually a goal. The, the full expression of the Eightfold Path is the path to the cessation of suffering. And so this path we walk on here when we practice is actually not a modest goal. It's a goal that's actually pretty ambitious and powerful. It's about coming to freedom. It's about coming to freedom and understanding in our lives. And that's what the, the Eightfold Path suggests, that that's the direction for, for our work together. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path, the eight aspects of the path, are divided into three kinds of training. And sometimes uh, Buddhist practice is talked about as the threefold training. And it's usually given in the order of first those aspects of training which have to do with ethics. And in terms of the Eightfold Path, there are three aspects. First is called right action, right speech, and right livelihood. And there's all, there also are three that are connected with meditation. Grouped under the grouped under the category of right samadhi, and those are uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And usually, the last aspect of training is the training in wisdom, the training in seeing things clearly. And that uh, in the eightfold path, there are two aspects there: right understanding, or right view, and right intention. And what's pretty interesting about the eightfold path 
is that it doesn't really go in the usual order. The usual order is that we first develop an ethical foundation. It's like we more or less get our external act together. And then we can practice. You know, have, have you noticed that when one's uh, outer life is in chaos, it's harder to practice, it's harder to be mindful? And so the usual sense of practice is that we first, first get a foundation in our... In our um, it's really you know, leading a life of more integrity, of more, um, more compassion and more wisdom. And th- on that foundation, then we go further with meditation and wisdom. But in the Eightfold Path... We start with right understanding or right view and right intention. And there's something about the way that we need to start with an orientation. We need to start on this path by being oriented or directed in a certain way or we really can't walk it. And so the order in the traditional teaching of the Eightfold Path is that first we, we, uh, we ground ourselves in wisdom then we make sure that we're further grounded in ethics or a life of integrity. And then we move further into meditation. And on the basis of meditation, we come back to wisdom. So we basically go wisdom, ethics, meditation, and then the liberating insight is usually actually taken to be uh, something associated with wisdom. And it's, it's actually surprising. If you look in the text, actually, most people have great liberating insight, not so much when they're meditating, but actually more when they're listening to talks. So we'll compare notes at the end of the session. But it's actually true. The more people get enlightened listening to talks than meditating in the suttas. It's very interesting. And I don't know whether that's also the case for speakers. <laughs> Um, getting enlightened, listening to their own talks, or whatever. But um, in any ca- in any case, it's uh, th- this is this is a way that we can think of the training that we're doing in our lives. We can think of our lives as having these three components of training in the way we act in the world, training in the meditative or inner life, and then training in wisdom, which is more like the way that we see our experience, the way that we look at life. And think of those as the three aspects of training. You can ask yourself, where am I stronger? Where do I need more work? Because one of the ways to use these Eightfold Path is to, as you hear them, to ask, which of these most speaks to me as what I need right now? Which of these uh, do I need to work on? So I want to I treat uh, pretty briefly the eight aspects of the path. And... Each of them really could have a talk just devoted to them alone. But I want to talk briefly and then have some time to, to talk together. The, the, first, um, the first aspect of the path is right understanding or right view. And traditionally, this was understood as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And when, when I go through each of them, each of these eight Uh, eight aspects of the path, what I'd like to do is first give the traditional meaning and then give what this might mean in our daily life practice. And we'll find that they're actually quite closely connected. So in the traditional teachings, to have right view or right understanding is to have a good understanding of the four truths. 
And I think you know that the Four Truths are, were actually the first teachings that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment. They're the truths of the nature of suffering, the fact that there is suffering in our lives, the fact that we um, find that our lives are, are sometimes feel off-center or we are agitated or distressed. And the second truth is the truth that the deep cause of distress and suffering is some kind of compulsive grasping or aversion to what's present. That there's some kind of compulsive way that we cannot be with what's happening. That is the source of suffering. So this suggests that there's a third truth, which is the truth, tr- uh, truth of the resolution of suffering, that it's possible not to suffer. Now, we have to clarify that, you know, and I think I'll use the metaphor that I've used a few times here, which is the metaphor that the Buddha gave of the two arrows. Do you remember that? Because it's not to say that we don't have pain, but there's a kind of distinction made between pain and suffering, which we don't always make in English in, in our culture. And the Buddha said that it's as if we were shot with, a, with an arrow. All of us are shot with an arrow, which is the arrow of pain. We all have a certain amount of pain in our life. Some have more pain than others. Some of us have more physical pain. Some of us have more emotional pain. We have a certain amount of pain which is given, which comes from past events. And that's the first arrow. And we can't really get rid of the first arrow. What we can do is to act wisely and compassionately on the basis of the first arrow. The Buddha said that the nature of suffering is shooting ourselves with the second arrow because of the first arrow. It's like to, and that's, that's where this compulsive grasping her aversion comes in. And so what we learn to do is we learn to be with what's painful. Not trying to make it stay, but we learn to be with the pain in the knee. We learn to be with the noticing of the crabbiness or the um, anger or the self-centeredness that we don't like. And we say, I don't want this here. I don't like this. And there's a certain kind of pain there. And we learn just to be present with it and have that be uh, treated without so much reactivity. And that's really the core. This is, that, this is really the core of the teachings. It's to learn how to be present, wise, and compassionate without reactivity. And I wanted to tell you a little story that I just heard last night. I was um, having dinner with a friend of mine And she told me a story of what had been happening the last uh, few weeks that I wanted to share with you. And I asked her if I could tell it. And she said, okay. And she, because I think that the story really manifests, I think, a very good understanding of many aspects of the the, uh, Four Noble Truths, and hence this aspect of right understanding. She had found that she was pregnant in um, early September. And... She had not intended to be pregnant, and she was not actually in a committed relationship. And it brought up all these very intense, powerful issues, which um, I'm sure some of us have grappled with, about about abortion, about uh, life, about bringing a child into the world. And she's getting close to 40, and she's always wanted to have a child. And... She 
didn't know what was the right thing to do, and so she went into a kind of self-retreat aside from her work for about three or four weeks. She just said, I want to really reflect and deliberate about the best action here, and I don't know what I'll do. And she also asked her friends not to tell me what to do. She asked, can you just listen to me? Because she knew in her own mind that there was potentially a lot of fear that could develop, about the, particularly about the idea of having a child, you know, without a partner and um, without that much financial resources. You know, it was very easy for her mind to get into a fear space. You know, and I think it, it, I actually was talking with her and I said, maybe most of us in this culture, we fear that if we do certain things, we'll all end up as bag ladies or bag men. Do you, do you have that? I, I've, 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 I've seen that in myself even and, and heard it in others, that we all have this kind of fear of, being, of ending up alone and impoverished. And I, I think it's actually a deep fear in our culture. And she was getting in touch with that. And, but she, what the reason that I connected this with right understanding is that she took a very deliberate uh, intention. She said, I know that I'm very close to going into a lot of fear. I'm very close to reactivity. I could easily go there. And I want to ask my friends, if they go there, not to communicate it to me. And not to say things which will help bring that out in myself. And she also very actively, when fear would arise, she would very clearly say, this is fear, I don't need to go there. And I think it was a very deep understanding of how certain patterns in her mind could lead to suffering and choosing not to go there. I think, to me, I don't know if you share this, and you may have different, we may have different views about the, um, about the situation, but to me it was a, it was a manifestation of a lot of understanding, particularly about how suffering occurs and how to act in a way which uh, doesn't lead to suffering. And actually I think that in our daily life practice, a great deal of our expression of right understanding or right view uh, comes when we actually go near the territory of suffering or distress. This is where, and so personally I think that taking moments of difficulty or distress as a starting point for practice is one of the most important things we can ever do to make the practice come alive in an everyday way. Because that's really where we enter this difficult territory. Maybe we can explore that a little bit more in, in, um, in the discussion. There's a beautiful poem that uh, was written by uh, a retreatant, some of you may know, named Kelly O'Connor. Does anyone know Kelly? Kelly, I think, lives in Point Reyes. And he wrote this poem at, at the end of the uh, New Year's retreat that ended in January 2002. And it's about right understanding uh, and, and suffering. It's called Ten Days at Spirit Rock. Rain. Giant oak crashing to the creek. Rain. Giant turkeys pecking the ground. Rain. Chocolate chip cookie melting in my mouth. Sunshine. 
pack bags, load car, write check, call babysitter, pick up Dylan, buy food, rent video, cook dinner, do laundry, take down tree, do dishes, schedule next retreat, and take responsibility for my suffering. <laughs> so that's the wisdom aspect. <laughs> so the, the second wisdom aspect is usually translated as right thought or right intention. And this, this takes us back to the centrality of intention in our, in our practice. And traditionally, the traditional meaning again uh, was a sense that one would have three core intentions. They are cultivating renunciation or being careful with one's desires and letting go of a lot of one's desires. A second uh, intention was uh, love or metta, non-harming. And a third was the quality of cultivating non-violence, non-cruelty. And, and this was the traditional meaning of right intention. In a, um, maybe in an everyday life manner, those certainly have a lot of power but for example, in my experiment at the meeting, I found that um, intention was so crucial. It was to come back continually. What's my intention right now? And ask the question over and over again, what's my intention? Because there's something about making this practice real in daily life in which uh, having our intention be strong is central. It's about, uh, in a given moment, asking, what should I do? Because my, in my experience, we're actually pretty good when we ask that question. Where, we're usually, where it's usually difficult is, we're in, is when we're on automatic pilot. And so if we can just stop a few times during the day and say, what's my intention here? I think that's of, of paramount value. And I think we do that in various ways. We, uh, I like to think of um, starting meals with friends or family in which we just have a moment of silence, is really about intention. It's that quality of settling back to saying, there's care, there's love, let that be, let that be uh, guiding us. Or it might be, some of you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a series of phrases or gattas. Uh, it's a traditional word for like these little short poems which one uses to bring back intention. So there's a, I think there's a book full of these, which is probably in the bookstore. And some of you may know these, but they're gatas like, there's a, there's a phrase that one uses when one's about to, to um, start the engine of a car. It, it goes something like, you know, um, as I drive, I know that the car and I are one. When the car goes fast, I go fast. <laughs> You know, and you can make these up. You can make these up. They're little things that help us with clarity of intention. Or something that I like to do is to just, before I begin an activity, just to take 30 seconds for intention. What's my intention here? You know? And those uh, restroom breaks that I was talking about earlier are very good for clarifying intention. So it's like, how can we make that intention be a stronger part of our lives? Another very good tool is something that I, I like to do is in the morning, if I do a sitting, when I, when I do my morning sitting, at the end of the sitting, I take two or three minutes for setting my intentions for the day. And again, this is a way to... Um, and it doesn't mean that I necessarily follow them, but it, it helps a lot. 
You know, and then sometimes during the day I'll remember, oh, yes, I was going to really be a little more kind today. Yes, good idea. Do it. <laughs> um, or, you know, being in that meeting and having a sheet of paper in front of me. That's, that's a way of strengthening intention, which, which I think is very important. The third aspect of the Eightfold Path takes us, starts to take us into the uh, dimension of action or the dimension of ethics. And again, there are three aspects there the aspects of right speech, right action, and um, right livelihood. And I'll just say a few words about each of these. Um, I think I want to have uh, at least a session or two on right speech here. And those of you who, um, who, who know me some know that this is one of my favorite areas and that I sometimes do day-long retreats just on right speech, where we, we just, you know, you could imagine a bunch of Buddhists just... Standing, sitting around all day talking to each other, cultivating right speech, or something that's both humorous and wonderful about it. You're just, you know, a bunch of people just talking to each other and they're all doing spiritual practice. Um, is, that, is that a funny image to you? <laughs> uh, and so traditionally there, there are usually four or five guidelines, and, and you may remember because I talked about this a few years ago here. And there are also wonderful guidelines that you can, um, you know, you can uh, put on a piece of paper and put near your telephone. Uh, but the, traditionally, the four guidelines I like to reconstruct as being truthful, being helpful, being kind, and the fourth is usually talked about as be, having appropriate thought. You could think of it also as clear intention. So it's truthful, helpful, kind and clear intentions or appropriateness of speech. And uh, I think that, that those traditional meanings have a lot of value in our everyday life. And if you, you know, some, a little practice that I do sometimes, especially uh, when I'm doing a lot of right speech practice, is before I answer the telephone, the telephone rings and I go, okay, truthful, helpful, kind, clear intention. Can you imagine the, the difference that that makes? It really uh, helps tremendously. So it's, again, it's the, the power of the clear intention. Or in, I work with some small groups in Berkeley, and we, we actually did right speech for three months in, um, in, in actually both of the groups I work with. And at the height of the work with speech, one of, my, um, one of the people in the group who has very difficult uh, times with her teenage daughter, she wrote down truthful, helpful, kind and clear intention on her hand. And as she would be talking with her daughter, she would just be staring this in the face as, as a way to help her with, uh, with, with speech. And so I think you're getting the idea that to uh, work with the Eightfold Path in daily life takes a lot of creativity. You know? And I, I, you know, my encouragement is to do these experiments and find out what makes these work for you. Because I have the sense we'll like, send out 50 people here, 60 people here, all do these experiments, and we come back and compare notes. And after, after five years, we have this great manual that serves humanity in wonderful ways. Um, so that's, uh, those are just some brief thoughts about, about right speech. Uh, the, fourth, uh, the fourth of the Eightfold Path, uh, right action, is usually talked about in terms of keeping the precepts. That uh, the, the importance of following the basic ethical precepts, which are to refrain as much as possible from harming, from taking what's not given, 
from speech that harms others, from sexuality that harms others, and from intoxicants that uh, hurt oneself or others. And usually, the, um, that's, the, that's the traditional meaning of right action. And again, when we try to bring this into daily life, we can certainly uh, work with those precepts and have those precepts be very important. There's something also about right action, like in the context of my meeting, where I would just continually come back to a clarity of intention and say, okay, what's the right thing here? What's the right thing to do? And I think that so much of uh, right action is taking the moment to go to our own depths and find out what we really believe, what we really think. That's why it was so marvelous for my friend to take these three or four weeks to really reflect and be careful with this very incredible decision. And I should, I should say that she cho- she's chosen to have the child. You know, and aware that that will not always be easy. But that's been, that was her conclusion at the end of that four weeks of reflection. You know? And so... Right action is so much coming back to asking myself and giving myself some space to say, what's the right thing to do here? What's the right thing? And, and bringing our mindfulness, our wisdom into play. You know, again, I think, that we're, I think that we do pretty well when we ask ourselves those questions. And usually we get in trouble when we're on automatic. The, the fifth aspect and the last of the ethical parts of the path is right livelihood. And I had always um, wondered, as you may have wondered, why is there right livelihood in the Eightfold Path when the Eightfold Path was particularly uh, given for monks and nuns? What do monks and nuns have to deal with livelihood about? I don't, is anyone puzzled about that ever? And I, I was doing some uh, study, and I found out that there actually was a meaning for monks and nuns. It wasn't just for lay people. That apparently right livelihood had a meaning for someone who was a monastic, that it had to do with uh, getting one's livelihood through being supported by others. And in particular, the Buddha was critical of a practice which was um, present at his time, which was that of people selling spiritual practices and getting money from them, and sort of being out there to uh, make a lot of money for um, spiritual teachings. And this apparently was part of the target uh, of the Buddha wanted to avoid that. You know, it's not very different from our time. You had people you know, wandering around in India at this time and saying, here, I have these great practices for you. Just will cost a little bit. And um, I don't need to say more about what that looks like in our culture. <laughs> you know, you know, joining a spiritually starved society with a society which is, or joining or connecting a society which is both spiritually starved and totally preoccupied with commodities and the market. And you put that together and you get the spiritual cafeteria. So the the right livelihood also had a meaning of following the precepts in our livelihood, of avoiding livelihoods that violated the precepts, avoiding livelihoods that involved harming of others or lying or stealing. And we could think that this is actually a pretty profound question for us to think about now if we want to apply to get my job. 
does my work involve the exploitation of others around sexuality? You know, so much of um, advertising exploits sexuality in certain ways. Does my work have to do with that? And it's not so much to find perfection here, but it's really to inquire. How is my livelihood um, following a life of integrity? And then more positively, how can my livelihood really serve my own learning and awakening? How can my livelihood be a place of practice and and development? And I think for most of us, I think this is a very profound question. We might want to look further into that question in the the discussion. So the, the final three aspects of the Eightfold Path are the ones connected usually with meditation. They're the... They're the, they're the um, factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Traditionally, right effort, as, as I, think, um, I think we've talked about this before, right effort traditionally had to do with the effort to, the effort to continually be aware and to bring uh, qualities to our practice that let us keep on practicing. Um, I've sometimes talked about the uh, canoeing version of right effort, that people remember the canoeing or kayaking version of right effort? Because the, the traditional way of talking about right effort is to talk about avoiding unwholesome states which have not yet arisen, getting rid of unwholesome states which have arisen, and cultivating wholesome states which have not yet arisen and maintaining wholesome states which have arisen. And the, one of my people in my group had this notion of how that applies to kayaking. It's basically... Stay out of trouble. Know what to do when you get in trouble. Develop good habits and keep them going. That's right effort. That's a very traditional version of right effort as taken through the kayaking metaphor. The, the seventh quality is right mindfulness. And this is, the, this is in my uh, work at the meeting, I found this to be crucial. It was to keep coming back to how can I be mindful moment to moment. The traditional meaning of right mindfulness is, are, is developing the four foundations of mindfulness. Developing the mindfulness of the body, the mindfulness of the feeling tone, or pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Developing mindfulness of the mind aspects, which includes what we would call thoughts and emotions. And developing mindfulness of the patterns of experience. And I think that that's really the, the also the key for us in our experience, is to how do, we, how do we bring about mindfulness in our daily life? How do we bring about mindfulness at our meetings? How do we bring about mindfulness when we're speaking? And this is not easy. As you know, it's not very easy even to be mindful in a very um, safe situation of a formal meditation. So how do we do this in our daily lives? I think this is the core question which we all need to work with. How can I be mindful in my work? How can I be mindful with people that I'm close to? How can I be mindful when I'm speaking? And at this meeting, I found that what was really key, and I think it's key particularly in our culture, are finding ways to be mindful when there's thought going on and when there's thinking and talking. And and for me, it had to do with grounding in my body. How could I be present at a meeting when there was just this thought, 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 <laughs> and how can I, you know, and when we're in that world, it's almost like we feel like we're taken into a, a totally mental world, right? 
how do we cultivate mindfulness in a mental culture? That's like our koan, right? We, if we're here, we value mindfulness. How do we cultivate mindfulness in a heavily mental culture that with computers is almost getting more mental? You know, and I think that mindfulness of the body is a key. Developing an ability, so for me at that meeting, it was, a, it was an ability to be present in my body and have a wider awareness that could have the thoughts going on but not be totally caught in the thoughts. You might experiment right now as you listen. Can you be aware of your body and your breath and also be aware of the talking? And also maybe even be aware of your internal movement, that's the quality which I think we need to develop to make mindfulness come alive in daily life, and it's not easy. You know, and we may, maybe we can give more attention to this in the coming weeks, but the ability to have, to move towards having 50% inner attention and 50% outer attention, I think that's what we need to be mindful, because otherwise, what, we just get caught in the mental, don't we? How do you do that? And you might, again, practice it right here as we, as we, as we listen, as we speak. The last of the Eightfold Path is right concentration. This is, again, in the context of meditation. Traditionally, this had to do with entering into the absorption states called the jhanas. And it meant the ability to have these very, very deep levels of concentration that really were way beyond any, uh, actually beyond our normal thoughts and beyond our normal patterns. And I think in daily life, uh, that is not so much applicable, but what's applicable is the ability to develop concentration so that we can cut through our conditioning and cut through our automatic behavior. That this is what we somehow need to find a way to do in daily life. And this is why I think daily practice is so important because it's only when we practice and only when we keep the mind able to be concentrated that we can start to be aware it's, it's the quality of concentration which can notice a distressing thought happening and know that it's going on and not be taken in by it. And without that quality of concentration, that distressing thought will take us over. And so it's a combination of mindfulness, which notices, and concentration, which sort of breaks the usual automatic, uh, almost like the trance that we're in of thought. And so it's these last qualities of mindfulness and concentration are, are very, very vital. And so that is, the, that is the Eightfold Path. And I think that we're, we as living lives that are not lives of monks and nuns are really challenged to find ways to make this real and strong in our daily life. And I think that we, as it were, are each invited. I'd like to invite you to do your own mindfulness experiments and find ways to have all of these qualities of the past be more and more operative in daily life. I think that's really our challenge as we do this practice together. And I love that we can come together in community and compare notes. And as I said, if we compare notes regularly, we'll produce a manual and a book that will be a great boon to our culture, which is much in need of boons at this time. So thank you very much. So questions or, or comments, please? Yeah. Yeah. Has that ever happened to anyone? <laughs> it's a great question because it's really, it's, really about, um, it's really about the fact that we do our best. 
and we and we we have the the ability to reflect and to see where we think we've um, where something was wise, and we can see that maybe oh maybe I didn't take account of that or maybe that wasn't so wise. But at every moment, we simply do the best we can, and, and we we act with as much wisdom as as we as we know, and we try to have clarity of intention, right? You know, I, I was actually talking about this with a friend just a few days ago, because we were, we were actually talking about the area of, um, of um, situations where one has good intentions and says something, and it's actually taken by the other person as, um, because the other person may have a great deal of pain, it may actually be taken as something quite negative. And we were particularly talking about this in, in, in terms of issues of race and ethnicity and also and, and gender, you know, because it came up in, in terms of some, um, some interact. We, it was actually partly um, the school where I teach. We, we had a whole day-long retreat on diversity issues. And then also there were some other issues that came up with another friend where there was a very um, where there was a comment that was made, but because, there was, because uh, another person... Um, had a certain amount of pain which was there, a well-intentioned thought created havoc. You know? And how does that person come back to that situation and say, okay, what do I make of that? I think the only answer is that we take, we take everything as learning. And we have a commitment to do our best in the moment, but we, we don't need to be attached to thinking that that's the best action forever. You know? And I think we also... Uh, can be very humble and admit that we make mistakes and that we have something to learn. You know, there, there's this, I'll just say one more thing, there's this incredible dilemma which I've reflected on a lot, which maybe you have too, which is that many of us, and I, anyone who had any bit of a perfectionist upbringing, has anyone, anyone here, anyone here a recovering perfectionist? <laughs> okay. I've seen, I, I think I had some of that upbringing and maybe not just some. And, and I have found in myself that there's this very strange tendency, I really, really want to learn, but I don't want to make any mistakes. And do you know how those, that's a contradiction? <laughs> it's like I really, really want to learn, but I don't ever want to have a reason to learn. Do you know what I'm getting at? There's, there's, there's this very deep inner contradiction to any perfectionist. Because it's, it's like I'm saying, I want to be recognized as perfect right now. And that's, t- of course, totally absurd. And that makes it actually hard for that person to learn. Because it's very hard for the person to admit that there's anything to learn. Um, so that, that's, that's another aspect of an answer. Let's see. There's one other person here. Who had a question? Did you have a question? Please, yeah. It's true. And I, actually, I think the, the, the Buddha was pretty clear about this because he talked about how um, actually we can do good things, have good intentions, and still be quite deluded. And we can even actually act ethically. And the Buddha said, this, this was in the teachings about karma, where he said that in, unless we have uh, no self-centeredness, we're going to keep on accumulating karma, even with our good actions, not just our bad actions. That as long as there's some delusion and self-centeredness, 
uh, our intentions may be a little bit off, even if all we can do is follow the good intentions. So the key, again, as with your question, would be to see our actions as uh, part of a learning process. You know, and that's why it's so important, I think, to have community, because we can compare notes. It's like we set up ourselves as a learning community in which um, each of us are doing those kind of experiments. But yeah, that, I think that's why they say in, you know, in the Western tradition, they say the, we say the, um, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Because we can have good intentions and be deeply deluded. That's not very reassuring. <laughs> but it's true. And so it's constantly then not to be satisfied just with good intentions, but to keep on looking to learn. Reasonable, reasonable discourse. discourse <laughs> yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. Uh, and it's a hard one because um, maybe I'll say something, maybe someone else would like to also respond to that question. But it seems to me that um, it's different if we're in a, a regular relationship with that person. You know, if we're in a regular relationship with that person and we know that there's pain for that person, I think we can be more sensitive. You know, and it may be... Uh, so, so there are probably a few parts to this response. One is that if we know that there's pain for a person, we can be more sensitive. You know, and we may want to speak knowing, bearing that pain in mind. And we may be aware that, you know, you know for example, for some people, uh, we, may, we may be sarcastic. And if there's pain with a certain person, the person will pick up that sarcasm as belittling. You know, I think we, we know that. And so we can be sensitive if we know there's pain for a person. That's, that's developing more compassion. That's one, one side. Another side would be, that sometimes we do totally our best and we have as good speech as we can summon. And that doesn't mean that the other person is not going to be reactive. You know, that it's possible to have really a lot of integrity and still have a person explode at oneself. Still have someone get angry and, say, and, you know, and be reactive because where there's reactivity, it's going to find uh, its target. You know? I mean, that's why... In the life of the Buddha, there were all sorts of people who uh, criticized the Buddha and attacked the Buddha. You know, they said, you're doing the wrong thing, you know, why did you say this, you know, and so forth. So I think, I think that's the second part, that there'll be some situations where whatever we're going to do, the other person will experience pain, right? And it's just because that's... Um, that's what happens. We know that from ourselves, right? Sometimes if I'm in pain, whatever someone says to me will, could be painful. And there might be some things which are, which are helpful. No, it, really, it really relates to, um, to your question about, I mean, this is such a fascinating area about intentions and actions and feedback and so forth. And I'll say one thing, and Anne, you wanted to, to add something here. Um, it's just, at a certain point, we just act... You know, there, there's that great teaching in the, the Gita of acting without attachment to the fruits of one's actions. There's something where one comes back to, we do our best and we let the chips fall where they may. Certainly, I know this as a teacher. I, 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 
once uh, taught a class in, when I was at the University of Kentucky, which was made up about a third of football players. I think I t- probably told this story because it was an evening class and they had just had six hours of practice and they had just eaten a big meal and they dozed quite a bit. <laughs> and, it, you know, and I would leave and, you know, you get the idea. <laughs> and, and I, that was where I most learned about uh, just doing my best and letting things fall where they may. <laughs> And it was really interesting. At the end of the semester, one person who I thought had certainly slept most of the time, he came and told me how much he had learned. And I was... I, I didn't ask for proof. <laughs> but, there, but I think we come back to that teaching, don't we? I mean, we try to be as skillful as we can, but there's something about we simply do our best, we check out our intentions, and we keep on learning. But we... Um, we, we really don't know all the consequences of our actions. And, we, and if we just looked around and tried to measure them, we might make... It's very hard to know. And I, I certainly know that as having taught for a lot of years. I really don't know. I mean, I get people 10 years from... You know, 10 years after I've seen them, they come and tell me something. It's, it's a good experience. It's, I mean, they only usually come when they have something good to say. <laughs> It's a great story. You know, it makes me, makes me think. I, I would love to have one of our sessions be around the theme of being with difficult people. Well, I, and, yeah, and then I think, is it my karma? Should, mm. I, should I keep this situation so I can learn? <laughs> no, I'm actually, I, I've been, I think we're, we're going to come to a, come to a close now, but I, I think that this theme is so uh, powerful for daily life practice, and I'm you know, I was thinking about this partly because I wanted to invite you, if, you, if you'd care to, before you leave today, to write out some themes that you would like to see explored in the next few months. If you write it out on a piece of paper and give it to me uh, before you leave today, or you can, of course, do it next time, uh, that would be great. And I, I will compile those because I'm trying to think of the, uh, of the sequence. And I, ha- I have some ideas. Uh, but uh, Anne's... Anne's challenge of, I mean, it would be amazing just to say, how do we work with uh, difficult people and compare notes and situate it in the Dharma context? I think it's, uh, that's where my mind goes with your, with your reflections. And so uh, I'd love to uh, continue with that in some way. So let's, just to bring it to a close, um, remember if you want to write something to give that to me about themes you'd like to see treated. And um, two or three short announcements. Um, I'm doing a retreat with Diana Winston this weekend in Santa Cruz on the theme of transforming ourselves, transforming the world, meditation in action. So uh, I have a bunch of flyers for that if you're interested. And there's still room. It's a non-residential retreat, but there, there's it's just, it's just Saturday and Sunday, actually. So there's one night and there's some possibility of being able to stay at people's homes in Santa Cruz. And it's very cheap. It's just $20 for the two days. So, is that right livelihood? I don't know. And, and then I also have, uh, if anyone's interested, I have some schedules of some upcoming retreats. I'm going to be, the weekend after, I'll be doing a day-long in San Jose. And the weekend after that, a day-long study retreat on socially engaged Buddhism at the Sati Center at the, uh, in Redwood City. 
So I have details on that, on that, on that, which I can um, I can give to people uh, if you want to come up here. Um, so let's just do a final closing. Um, sitting quietly and letting be present whatever was most important from the morning. Could be from one's travel here or from the sitting, from the talk, discussion. Different aspects of the Eightfold Path. You might be interested or inspired in doing your own um, mindfulness experiment in the next week and bringing back uh, stories. So see if there are any intentions which come out of the time here that you'd like to follow up on. And so, as always, we dedicate the fruits of this morning to the awakening of all beings, knowing that we practice here not just for ourselves, but for all others with whom we're in contact. And may the fruits of our time together be shared widely for the benefit and the awakening of all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.